0: Hello and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I have the pleasure to be joined by an international leader with expertise in renal pathology, Professor Agnes Fogo, who joins us all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, the home of American country music and the Grand Ole Opry, a theater that I've had the privilege to, to attend. So Professor Fogo currently serves as president of the International Society of Nephrology and is an award-winning educator. She's written two successful books and created an online atlas of renal pathology, working with the American Journal of Kidney Diseases and the National Kidney Foundation. Professor Fogo completed her medical training in Vanderbilt University, which is also in Nashville, and she graduated from the University of Oslo, in Norway. We'll talk a little bit about that transition. In 2011, she received the Robert G. Nairns Award from the American Society of Nephrology and the 2019 International Society of Nephrology Roscoe R. Robinson Award for her contributions to teaching. Her research interests lie mostly in the progression of chronic kidney diseases and the crosstalk between tubules and glomeruli. Today, Agnes is director of the Renal Electron Microscope Laboratory and Division at the Vanderbilt University Medical Centre in Nashville, where she serves as a professor of pathology, microbiology and immunology, as well as working in medicine and paediatrics. She's a big basketball fan and plays pickup games when time allows, and being Norwegian, she enjoyed cheering for Norway in the Winter Olympics, which is something that we Brits struggle with, and if anyone hasn't seen it, the movie about Eddie the Eagle is well worth watching. Most wonderfully, Agnes tells me that her Bernese mountain dog and their big dogs think she's a lap dog. We're very, very privileged to have you with us, Professor Agnes Fogo.
1: Thank you so very much, Professor Sackier. It's a pleasure to join you.
0: Well, you're going to have to call me Jonathan or or it's going to be Professor this and Professor that throughout. (laughs) (laughs) so relocating from Norway what, what drove you to the USA and specifically to Tennessee
1: I met an American in Norway as I'd started my medical school there and the short story is mommy is daddy's Norwegian souvenir and she's lasted a very long time
0: there you go that's as good a reason as any so you completed your residency and fellowship at Vanderbilt where you've remained since why nephrology and what was it about nashville that that attracted you i have to say that i had some prejudicial opinions of the place until i went went there to visit a very good friend of mine uh, moved there from colorado and it's it's a great little city
1: nashville has emerged from being a small town to a city and particularly vanderbilt from being a regional university to being international, having great emphasis on wellness of students, collegiality, and most importantly, I've stayed here because this is a place that really emphasizes for everybody to reach their potential and allows people to follow individualized tracks. For example, as I was nearing the end of my medical school here, I very much desired to start a family, and I was supported back eons ago, not only in my crazy idea to have a baby while a senior medical student, but to do a year of part-time research before starting my residency. I entered into the field of pathology because of an influence of a fabulous teacher who impressed me by his ability to think about what causes diseases and solving puzzles. And then I had the fabulous opportunity to enter into kidney pathology When Ike Robinson, the founding editor of Kidney International, came here and recruited fabulous leaders for nephrology who wanted somebody in pathology who could be dedicated with special interest. So I had the opportunity to do research and diagnostic renal pathology training and haven't looked back since. It's a wonderful, rich environment with terrific colleagues.
0: You know, you made a a key point there about um, the influence of of one or more charismatic people as as one's going through one's training i i certainly had that experience and i've had this conversation with many guests and it it's it's stimulated me to think wouldn't it be great if one could isolate what's that secret sauce that makes some people just so carry it's like the it factor it's like the movie star factor and it'd be great if one could say yeah that's what it is and replicate it right
1: I agree with you completely. I still remember what Dr. Robert Collins called upon me as a second year medical student in class. He had a Socratic method of teaching and said, "Miss Fogo, the word leukemia, what does it mean? And I didn't feel picked upon or as if I was being tested. I felt that I was being engaged in active learning and thinking about disease process. So he was a very influential role model for me and the endowed chair I hold now the chaperone chair was first held by him. And I think he was as proud as I was when I took it over upon his retirement from that position.
0: Yeah, someone once said to me that, the, and you know he was one of my teachers, uh, and he said that the most profound joy that he got was to see his trainees do something better than he could do it and to see them flourish. And because it, it sort of magnified his impact on patient care.
1: Yeah, Dr. Collins even forgave me for not pursuing hematopathology, which was his (laughs) specialty, and finding my own special niche in pathology.
0: Well, good good for you. It's a lovely story. So I've, I've written and edited some surgical textbooks, and I love hearing from others who've gone on the same journey, especially if they've done it more than once, because I remember embarking on my second and thinking you know, I must have a screw loose. So let's talk about the books you've published, The Diagnostic Atlas of Renal Pathology and Fundamentals of Renal Pathology. They depict the pathological features and clinical manifestations of common and rare renal disorders. So tell me about the, tell us about the writing process and any any stories that you care to share about the, the process of writing. Yeah.
1: Thanks for asking, Jonathan. So I was very privileged to be on the program committee for the American Society of Nephrology when Ramsey Cotran, an eminent professor and chair of pathology at Harvard, was the president of ASN. And he allowed me and encouraged me to develop a teaching unit within the ASN meeting where pathologists and nephrologists would come together in a room with slides and learn how to interpret common lesions. And from that, first little mini-course developed a two-day course, which is still ongoing, and from that course we developed with my fabulous colleagues, uh, too many to mention, a textbook that encompassed the key teaching elements of all of those basic diseases that we were teaching at a basic level to nephrologists and nephrology trainees. So that's the story behind fundamentals of renal pathology. The other book, The Atlas of Renal Pathology, Diagnostic Atlas of Renal Pathology, just had its fourth edition come out, and that was an adventure that I have been undertaking with Michael Kashkir and Professor Emeritus at Yale, where we had an invitation from Barry Brenner, one of the giants in nephrology, to write a companion book to his series of books related to many topics in nephrology, and it has evolved to be... Freestanding, and it also is aimed to be educational at basic learners. The process of writing is interesting, because you think that it's so easy to put down what you know, but it put it down in a way that is clear, not just in your head, but on paper, and that Stepwise can take other people through the steps and give them essential information without drowning it in details is something that both Mike and I have worked on and it's been very helpful to work with a team and have people to edit and polish and clarify things that were clear in your head but not so clear on paper and this last edition of the book even has in the online version has three tiny little movies I was able to convince Elsevier to allow me to make with our medical illustrator little animations of disease so we are very excited and energized by having been part of this adventure together.
0: They're, they're a great publishing house. I did some work with them a long time ago, and I want to come on to the, the online component in a bit, but I, I was taught that the secret of writing is rewriting and never fall in love with anything you've written. And you're absolutely right. It's very hard. You In your head, it all makes perfect sense. And then you, well, I certainly sometimes sit in front of the computer staring at the screen thinking, you know, it's in my brain. Why can't I get it to come out? So I want to talk a little bit about the online component because nowadays information is immediately available and the time interval from writing a conventional book to publishing can be very lengthy. Do you think that books such as those will continue to play a part in the future of of medical education and specifically the area you work in, renal education, or do you think we'll transition to you write it, it's up, it's edited, it's up instead of, you know, the whole process if it comes back, it's galley proofs, then the darn thing's got to be printed and bound and distributed. What do you think?
1: I think that education clearly is becoming more and more focused in bites that go with shorter attention spans During Zoom times, we have learned that having the one-hour Grand Rounds lecture is not the best way to keep people's attention when you're not in the same room together. I do think that there still is value in having a gathered focus. I don't know if I will call it a book or an online larger work that integrates many different parts. Each small part may be digested in a small amount of time, but to integrate that and have those feed on each other and inform each other to create a coherent whole, I think still has some value, particularly when you're dealing with foundational knowledge in a topic. And then I think for more advanced learners who want to dig in deeper in one small expert area, I think the type of learning that we see in many fora, for instance, the terrific resource of UpToDate, will have small areas that get updated with hot information. The problem then is having it not be unbalanced and to have other elements reference this updated information and insight. So it becomes an ongoing active work process. But I I do think we will go away from having paper resources, but I think there still may be resources that are a bigger body of work that integrates concepts together with smaller pieces that may be updated more regularly.
0: I'm not much of a of a collector of anything, but I have a, a small collection of old medical textbooks and just the feel of them and the weight, the heft in your hand and the smell of, of paper, of, of, of age and the knowledge that other doctors tend to 50, 100 plus years ago, held those same books is to me, it's a very romantic feel, which my, my computer doesn't quite give me. So how have you observed a, a shift towards digital education during your career? And you mentioned Zoom times. Um, have you enjoyed that, the, the virtual attendance model of, of congresses? And, and what have you missed about in-person attendance?
1: Let me start by talking about congresses. For the World Congress of Nephrology, I just presided as president of ISN over the one in Kuala Lumpur, and it was fantastic that we were able to have a hybrid component with a few local people in in the hundreds attending in person, but there still could be interaction from many parts of the world. But what we miss by not being in person in those type of conferences are the unplanned networking the people who are too shy to ask questions via zoom or the chat to come up afterwards and introduce themselves or have the opportunity to be introduced by their mentor so i foresee a future where we will take advantage of the outreach possibility and communication possibilities with online versions of large congresses and having things available for a longer period of time for educational purposes, and then trying to maintain the networking interaction and mentoring component of in-person meetings. For teaching, and I do teach in the medical school here, I think teaching by Zoom has been challenging during the last two years as we've oscillated several times back and forth. It's harder to see if students are engaged. It's more difficult for them to interact and ask spontaneous questions. We've made it work, but the in-person teaching has advantages when you work in an interactive teamwork style, as we like to do with a lot of small group teaching here at Vanderbilt.
0: Yeah, I I recently had the privilege of presiding over a, a CME uh, webinar on a topic that I was completely ignorant about, and I, I got to chair chair the webinar. And it was an in-person webinar with international folks in in London. We, we, we filmed it in London. My goodness, it was a wonderful feeling to again interact with, ask questions, react differently because you can see the body language and, and Josh about, you know, with people and just have some fun with it. Um, I've missed that sitting in, you know, sitting in front of a computer. So I'd like to change tack a little bit. Can you speak a bit about the work you're involved with leading a, a clinical lab to investigate kidney biopsies, light microscopy, immunofluorescence, electron microscopy? Where is this science to date? I'm very, very different from my tuition as a medical student with hematoxin and eosin stains and peering down an ancient light microscope.
1: Well, we haven't evolved as much as you might think, Jonathan. We still use those stains in addition to a periodic acid shift and a silver stain, and maybe a trichrome stain. I think what has changed is that we are beginning to have some insights into etiologies of kidney disease that can be determined by staining for the presence of particular antigens in some immune complex disease. So we have expanded our repertoire of morphologic assessment. Digital pathology hasn't quite become mainstay for diagnostic kidney pathology because of the number of serial sections we look, the number of stains we look at, it's not, quite as efficient it takes more time it requires more resources and bandwidth some things you cannot diagnose on a digitized whole slide image like crystals you cannot polarize a whole slide image and then i think that we are beginning to move forward to a very exciting arena that is still only in the research mode with spatial transcriptomics and multiplex staining that will give us a greater repertoire of understanding the molecular signature associated with lesions that may look the same by light microscopy or immunofluorescence, but have very different underlying stages and mechanisms and may result in different treatments. That's still in the research stages, but there are really exciting studies there. So we still do light microscopy, immunofluorescence, electromicroscopy. We integrate all of those findings with the clinical history. We do have a larger repertoire of things we can stain for. One of the big discoveries by David Salant groups and Paul Beck's group some years ago was finding the common antigen in membranous nephropathy that had no discernible external etiology. And PLA2R, phospholipase A2 receptor staining, is very useful with an ancillary serum test that can be used to guide diagnosis and response to treatment. I'm hoping we will have many more such examples of markers of specific ideology of disease and that these can also be helpful in guiding therapies.
0: I have very, very fond memories of my um, pathology colleague from when I was working in Washington, D.C. His name was Arnie Schwartz. Arnie took great delight in coming to the operating theatres to stick his nose in and see what we were up to. And then was even more delighted when a surgeon wanted to come to the pathology uh, laboratories and peer down the microscope, and you know he was he was so proud of what he could do. So uh, it, it's exciting to know that that your specialty is advancing in 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 those ways. I'd like to switch topics again. Your presidency is, will come to a close, or has come to a close, of the International Society of Nephrology. What what would you hope to have achieved from that your tenure? And can you say a few more words about the World Congress of Nephrology that you were involved with and some of the highlights and the mission and so on and so forth?
1: Thank you very much. So the ISN is set up with a two-year term as president-elect, a two-year term as president, and a two-year term as past president. So I'm in the middle of my term as president. We had one successful hybrid meeting last month based in Kuala Lumpur that I attended virtually And we are now planning for the next meeting of the World Congress of Nephrology. These meetings have transited to yearly meetings for the last several years. That will be held in Beijing in April 2023. The main goals that I have for my presidency is to continue the excellent work of my predecessors, having an emerging leaders program with a very amazing cadre of young leaders from around the world that engage in mentoring meetings. We just had our kickoff meeting for the new cohort yesterday morning. And then a new initiative that we have given the eponym Transform of bringing together translational researchers, patients who are scientists and know about kidney disease, pharma representatives, regulatory representatives, and putting together our goal is best guidelines and advice on how to plan and conduct animal studies that will have the best chance of giving translational information for human interventions. And this is originally was planned for the spring due to COVID. It will be held in the fall. Uh, This will be the major new thing that I will undertake during my presidency in addition to furthering ISN's mission to enhance capacity to bridge gaps where there are gaps, to focus on how we can increase awareness of kidney disease. As a non-state partner with the WHO, we are working very strongly with that organization and with the European Kidney Health Alliance organization to increase awareness and partnership with other kidney organizations for kidney disease. And then, of course, I have to mention the tremendous burden on all of us thinking about the situation in Ukraine, thinking of how everybody is affected by the terrible war going on there, and particularly how it affects those who have acute kidney injury due to war injuries or those who already had kidney disease and are displaced from their renal replacement therapies. And this comes on top of recognizing the extreme vulnerability of our kidney disease population to COVID and its complications and the difficulty in having adequate immune response to vaccines. So these are four fronts where we are working very hard through all possible venues to increase awareness, to provide education, to provide resources, knowledge, and try to change policies or influence policies to make a better outcome for kidney patients.
0: Your, your comments about Ukraine are telling, I, I did a, a solo podcast um, about this situation. And <clears throat> Ukraine has had, before the war, a, a, a pretty low vaccination rate, and a lot of people have left uh, Ukraine, obviously, and you know, a high burden of renal disease and these poor people, many of them, of course, will not be getting treated so the burden is huge and and tragic turning back to your clinical work you've been influential in many spheres in kidney disease where where is your future your 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 future focus um further research in the fields you've already explored differentiation and regeneration of podocytes from stem cells um, pathophysiology of the renin angiotensin system or something else what are you up to
1: we are very excited to understand how tubular injury that appears to be clinically recovered using the clinical parameters in our animal models enhance the susceptibility of the glomeruli, the filtering units, to a second hit. We have some exciting models. We have spatial transcriptomic data. We have collaborations with our colleagues in biomedical engineering to use artificial intelligence to be able to more efficiently identify glomeruli that have lost their connection with tubules and understand what is going on there. So we have a a lot of exciting new ways of exploring how the kidney units function. We have about a million nephrons in each human kidney, about 30,000 in each mouse kidney, and we are using these connections of tubules and glomeruli to understand the mechanisms that could be operational in disease and that could perpetuate sensitivity to second and third hits. And we're very fortunate to be funded by the NIDDK of the NIH for our research. Yeah, Digestive Diabetes and Kidney Disease within the National Institute of Health. Yeah, this is the US-based major funding organization. And we, we are excited and particularly having gone through very challenging times with COVID restrictions that we can keep on gaining more traction to get more insights on new ways that could be understood in kidney damage that might let us have better ways to treat kidney damage and maybe even regeneration as you refer to that is some of our earlier work has pointed to the possibility and some human data too, point to some possibility of some scarring being able to be resolved resulting in more functional kidney tissue
0: the incredible thing about the, the profession that we're so privileged to be a part of is there's just so much to know and so much to learn about. And it, it's, it's so mentally stimulating, but the, there's also, you know, existential threats like, like war and, and like infectious diseases and then climate change, which also has health impacts. For the nephrologist listening and for other practicing clinicians who are listening, which areas of your specialty do you think require the most urgent focus for research? Are there sort of in innovative aspects of treatment that you see transitioning into clinical practice soon? In other words, what what's the news you can use that's coming down the tracks?
1: So I, I think what could have the biggest impact for the most patients is to increase awareness and early and early screening. So that is one of the objects of World Kidney Day. I think what would... In addition, have a huge impact is how we can change the trajectory of acute kidney injury being a major risk factor for subsequent chronic kidney disease and scarring. How, when we identify patients with acute kidney injury, how we can change that pathway and have them instead have healing and regeneration instead of going on to chronic kidney disease. And then, of course, trying to prevent acute kidney injury, we have many different challenging situations in different parts of the world. We know data related to climate change from Australia, changing the epidemiology of chronic kidney disease. We have data from China that links pollution and changes in air quality in major urban areas to increase incidence of some autoimmune diseases like membranous nephropathy. And we have other areas where we don't know yet what exactly is going on, that we very we the nephrology field have very creatively named CKDU for chronic kidney disease of undetermined etiology, particularly in agricultural workers, first in Mesoamerica, but also seen in Sri Lanka and in India. And these are all areas where there's a lot to learn and a lot that we do not know. And we need to have focused efforts for early screening, early detection, and in-depth mechanism investigation so that we can do better by these patients so they don't end up needing dialysis or transplant.
0: Exciting times, I'm sure. I, I always like asking my guests a version of this question. If you were granted three wishes to advance or improve global healthcare, what would you wish for?
1: So not kidney-focused, Jonathan.
0: No, no it's, it's up to you. You're the boss.
1: That is a very uh, tough question. I think that I would advocate for uh, removal of all stimuli for cancer in the environment would be a huge increase for global health. To have a reversal of the obesity, diabetes epidemic that if we have worldwide would be fantastic. And then to have clean air and water so that we could all be happier and have less chronic stresses on all of the diseases we might accumulate would be very global and none of them particularly kidney focused.
0: The conspiracy theorists out there who often, and believe me, I've even had death threats for some of the things I've said, um, sort of challenging non-science based thinking will often state that physicians are just interested in perpetuating the ability to make a living looking after sick people. And then you go and say something that effectively says, I would like to be put out of a job, basically. (laughs) Because if you take away, you know, things like smoking and we have clean air and people, you know, don't eat themselves into an early grave, you and I would not be as busy as we are. Professor Agnes Fogo, you've been a delight and I'd love to have you back and, you know, talk some more maybe about the issues of climate uh, change or environmental change on on your organ of interest. I promised myself I wasn't going to make any jokes about steak and kidney pie, but uh, there we go. So lovely having you here, Agnes. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: So if you wish to learn more about nephrology and Professor Fogo, please take a look at this episode's show notes where you'll find some useful information and links. And please subscribe to the EMG Health Podcast and tell your friends and colleagues if you liked it. And if you didn't like it, don't. And please tune into next week's episode and episodes that we've got plenty of them archived and keep coming back. So until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMG Health Podcast. Stay safe, stay well. Stay curious. Bye for now.